Welcome to episode 154 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux canoes. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. Join me as we check out what's new in the Linux world, and occasionally I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got a ton of distro news this week. We'll take a look at OpenSUSE's new Leap 15.3, Kali Linux, NixOS, Clonezilla, and RescueZilla are also available in this week's distro news section. Plus, we've got some excited app news this week. We'll check out Firefox 89, Blender 2.93 LTS, and OBS 27. Later in the show, we'll take a look at the newest release of the Cinnamon Desktop with version 5.0, and then we'll discuss the new Amazon Sidewalk system that is looking to open your internet to your neighbors. All that, so much more, coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux GNU's. First in the show this week, we have OpenSUSE Leap 15.3 has been released. So OpenSUSE has announced the latest point release of OpenSUSE Leap, which is 15.3. And while point releases aren't typically noteworthy, but you know, from beyond uh, you know minor improvements or bug fixes and that sort of stuff, this is an exception because this is the first version of Leap that is directly based on SLE or SUSE Linux Enterprise 15 SP3 to be specific. Now, SP3 service pack, if you, don't, you didn't know what that meant. Uh, Leap 15.3 is a very interesting thing because by, you know, we'll just quickly clarify like what does it mean by being based on SLE? So previously there was this separation between SLE and Leap. So they, they have a structure of OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, was going to taking packages in snapshot form and then being pushed down to OpenSUSE Leap and SLE. And they were doing it in a separate structure of packages being done on SLE or getting modified by the SUSE team and then the packages on Leap were being modified by the OpenSUSE team. And what they've done is this new uh, structure, which they originally were calling the jump structure, but now that it's been completed, it is now just the way that it is. So the way it works is now, instead of going from Tumbleweed branching twice to SUSE, uh, SLE, and OpenSUSE's Leap, it would, uh, it's now going to a more uh, ladder structure. So for example, it's OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, when packages are, are being are finished in that one and being rolled out to SLE, it goes from uh, the packages are being snapshotted into, open, into SUSE's SLE or SUSE Linux Enterprise, and then it's being modified and in kind of uh, stabilized, and they're also doing a lot of testing and that sort of stuff inside of SLE. And then from that point, it goes into OpenSUSE Leap, which creates a binary compatibility v uh, value between SLE and Leap, which is a really interesting approach because, I mean, there's there's so many good value you could have from that. For example, the previous versions of Leap, it, they'd had different, it, it, it had support for PowerPC and ARC64, which is the ARM-based architecture, but it was done by separate communities and also it was a lot more limited resources. But now with this new structure, with OpenSUSE Leap 15.3, the work and support that SLE has for those architectures is now inherited by OpenSUSE Leap, which is a big thing because it means that they're eliminating a lot of uh, reduplicative effort and that sort of stuff. So it makes it more efficient. It allows them to uh, use resources in a different way. 
and also be more uh, productive in how they handle, you know, who is developing what and that sort of stuff. So it's really interesting that they're doing this. And also OpenSUSE Leap 15.3 is going to get uh, support for at least about 18 months or so for like updates and maintenance and that sort of stuff. Uh, and also it has a new a pa a new package manager included with DNF 4.7. Now it's not the default, but it is a really cool thing that I wanted to note because I'm a fan of DNF. It's a very slick package manager that I'm happy to see making its way into OpenSUSE. And also it has uh, support for the uh, DNF Python API, as well as some other DNF related stuff. So I'm really happy to see that. And also OpenSUSE Leap 15.3 comes with an option to use XFCE 4.16 desktop with a new visual identity, you could call it, with some new icons and color palette changes and some other stuff. So it's a really nice update for the people who are using XFCE and want to use Leap. And a lot of other things are in this latest release. I'm a fan of SUSE and OpenSUSE, uh, especially the Tumbleweed edition. I think Tumbleweed is really impressive in its engineering and how it works with the snapshotting. While it, it's a rolling, bleeding-edge distribution that also has a snapshot and transactional update, updates and stuff like that, so it's, it's a lot cleaner in the way it does the bleeding-edge structure, which is a really interesting approach. I also really like a lot of the other stuff that OpenSUSE does, and there's some products that are SUSE and OpenSUSE build, like uh, the Open Build service, like OBS, is a very powerful platform for building packages for all kinds of distributions and spin platforms, not just OpenSUSE, but also Fedora, Debian, Arch, Ubuntu, and many more. You can you can use the OBS open build service to build all sorts of different packages, including, I'm pretty sure, app images and maybe even Flatpaks, like so many cool things you can do with OBS. Uh, then there's also the uh, OpenQA system, which is an automated quality assurance platform that is so impressive to me because it can run tests automatically, but uh, in addition to just providing results of like, here's what happened in like a text form, it also generates videos that you can watch to make sure that the system performs it in the way that it is expected to do. So that is just awesome. OpenQA is so cool. And I think OpenSUSE deserves a lot more credit than they get in the community, but I kind of get it too because of the... SUSE and OpenSUSE don't really talk about all the cool stuff they're building, so people are not aware of these things. Like, not a lot of people aren't aware that OpenQA exists. I kind of randomly stumbled across it, and I just started digging through, finding, like, the they don't even talk about the video attachment. I ha I was just randomly clicking around. It's like, oh, video file. Like, whoa, the tests are recorded. That's awesome. Like, these kinds of things would be beneficial for them to talk about, so I kind of get why they don't get as much credit as I think that they should get. And... Um, I guess that's a topic for another day, though. Um, maybe maybe a dedicated video would be good for this. I don't know. Uh, if you'd like to see a dedicated video about OpenSUSE and their infrastructure behind how it works, as well as what I think OpenSUSE could do to become a bigger player in the ecosystem, then let me know in the comments below or on the DLN forum thread that I will have linked in the description. So there you go. Links in the show notes. Up next on the show is the latest release of Firefox web browser. So Firefox 89 has been released and this is a big update. Firefox 89 adds more improvements to the privacy features of previous versions, like for example, the smart block feature that was introduced in version 87. This has been improved quite a bit for enabling a seamless web page experience when blocking trackers. And the total cookie protection feature received a lot of expansion to further improve the new private browsing mode that was introduced in Firefox 88. Also, Firefox 89 makes it so that the autoplay on media is now disabled by default, which I certainly appreciate. And the biggest change, though, this time around, has to be the new Proton design. 
So the Proton design is a new look that introduces a simplified browser Chrome and toolbar system. And real quick, Chrome is a term that refers to the UI of an application window, so it might be weird for me to for you to hear me say Firefox's browser Chrome, but that's the reason because Google loves to be annoying when it comes to naming stuff, it seems, because they pick application names of things that already exist and then they, you know, kind of take it over in terms of like the zeitgeist and whatnot and whatnot. But you know, they have been quite effective in doing so with the term Chrome browser or browser Chrome. So I guess it kind of worked what they were doing. But uh, also, I guess another real quick note, because like that part's annoying, but they did do it again on the Blink engine because it's named after the notorious Blink tag that was used in HTML spec, you know, a while ago. And that thing was infuriating. So if we finally actually have something that was, you know, HTML related that's good in terms of Blink. So I guess, I guess there you go. Anyway, moving back to the actual topic, Proton Design has a lot of changes. It's got streamlined menus, updated info bars and modal prompts, a refined color palette, a brand new first run welcome page when you start the, at the browser, uh, more consistent styling and, and improvements to the iconography as well, and also somewhat controversial change of a new tab design with floating tabs. So I have a couple quick quotes I wanted to give you about the design from Mozilla's blog post about the latest release because they say a fresh new Firefox is easy on the eyes with bright and buoyant on the screens of all sizes. And easy on the eyes and bright doesn't necessarily relate to a lot of people. So it's an interesting way of phrasing that. I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, I like dark mode, just saying. And also they comment on the new look for the tabs. They say that based on our research, we found out that more than half of you have four plus tabs open at all times. And some of you have a lot more. And this is something that is interesting because they're saying the reason why they changed the design is that they say that the tabs got a makeover so they are now gently curved and float above the toolbar. They say that it's an exciting change that, that also serves as a reminder that tabs aren't stationary. So grab those tabs and move them around and organi organize them as you like. I don't think anybody ever thought they were stationary because the entire point of a tab is to be able to move them around and have multiple options of... Anyway, that's a weird, weird approach to explaining why. But I think I have made it abundantly clear to those who, have, who are longtime twillers of the show that I am a big fan of Firefox. I've been using Firefox for, uh, I don't know, as it's been my primary browser since before it was called Firefox, so that's a while. And of course, I've dabbled here and there with other browsers, you know, occasionally trying out all the new browsers on the block. And I tend to just go back to my old friend Firefox, though. So I've received quite a few questions about my opinion with the new look of Firefox, especially with this Proton design of the new tabs. I will say that the reasoning behind the floating tabs is a bit weak in regards to indicating tabs are movable. But I mean, all right. Uh, this change is not a big deal to me, though, for a couple of reasons. I think the new tabs look kind of good. While they're not necessarily tabs anymore, they're more like buttons, but it's it's fine. It looks okay. And it might be slightly off-putting at first. I don't think it will have that much of an impact for most people. Though, oddly enough, I started using sidebar tabs recently, so I modified my Firefox to hide the tab bar anyway. So this change will probably not affect me at all. I mean, if I decide to keep the sidebar structure of tabs, uh, I haven't really decided if I was going to keep it or not, 
but it is an interesting workflow. And after years of people telling me to try tabs in the sidebar, I finally gave it a chance and started using it. And it is rather good, which is kind of interesting because I decided to do the tab sidebar thing before I found out the Proton design was coming. I've been doing it for a few months or so. And it's, it's kind of funny because I am not going to be affected by it. So maybe that's why it doesn't bother me that much. I don't know. But anyway, if you learn more about Firefox 89 or get a download for yourself for the latest version, you can check the links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have the latest release of Blender, which is Blender 2.93 LTS. They say that the Blender 2.93 LTS, or long-term support release, marks the end of a series of 20-plus years in the making, paving the way for the next generation of open-source 3D creation pipeline. Now, this is really interesting because this release of Blender 2.93 is a big update with a lot of improvements, and it makes me excited in addition to all of that because... This is being the end of a series means that Blender 3.0 is right over the horizon, and that is awesome because I'm so excited to have this because Blender has been doing a lot of cool stuff with the latest release, but they're making they have announced some big changes to the Blender engine that is coming in three, and I'm super excited about that. But before we get to Blender 3, let's talk about what's new in Blender 2.93. So there's a total of 22 new nodes that were added to the geometry node system, the geometry node editor specifically, expanding the attribute system, the sampling textures, support for volume data, improved usability, uh, the mesh prim primitives, cycle supports, uh, all sorts of stuff. It's also now possible because of it to uh, create mesh circles, uh, cones, cubes, cylinders, other types of shapes and spheres, uh, and also without ever having to leave the, ge leave the geometry nodes editor, which is really important uh, because for efficiency uh, for the modeling system. And if you've ever wondered like what exactly a value is for a specific attribute, they have this new spreadsheet uh, editor system that allows you to, to uh, inspect meshes or instances and even point to different uh, cloud systems to find out what the actual value is for those specific attributes, which is really awesome. And they've had some imp improvements to the line art modifier, which is there was very highly anticipated improvements because this means that it'll automatically generate grease pencil lines around your objects. And the line art modifier also generates stylized uh, lines on the scene and collections and individual objects, making it, uh, you know, you can have a nice line art uh, style using uh, Blender, which is really cool. And speaking of the grease pencil, which is an interesting name for a tool, uh, these are, there's new multi-frame display in it. Uh, dope sheet uh, context menu has been reorganized. They've also made some changes to the annotations for opacity. Uh, there's new layer transform parameters, as well as being able to import and export uh, various different objects, such as importing SVG files. And you can export the objects from the grease pencil as vectors to use in Inkscape, which is really awesome as well as there's some other stuff for like PDF exports and stuff like that because the PDF exports are now supporting animation, which is really interesting. It creates a new page per keyframe. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but they say for uh, it'd be great for storyboards, and I, I guess, but all right. Anyway, really, really cool. Plus, also, the, the fill tool has been improved, but it's, it's faster, it's more precise. It's, they even say that it's smarter. And they say that you can uh, create temporary closing strokes on the fly, which is really, really awesome because with a, a fill tool, you have this problem with 
Basically, if you have an opening in any of your lines, when you try to use the fill tool, it will just escape whatever you're using and whatever lines it has. And it will create this issue where it will bleed in the fill. So you will fill stuff you don't want to fill. So you can create temporary closes on the, the lines and then do use the fill tool, remove those uh, closings, and it will take the design back to what it was, but it'll still be a functional fill tool, which is fantastic. Now, this is uh, also possible by, you know, you can dynamically adjust the strokes with like the scroll wheel and page up, page down key keyboard shortcuts, which is really awesome. Uh, it's, it's something that doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you get into the development and design of, uh, you know, creating these models, the fill tool saves a lot of time. And when you're able to do it in a, a temporary way, but also make it so that the field tool can be more efficient is just, it's fantastic. Plus there's also a bunch of other improvements such as improvements to the EV render and so much more. If you want to check out all the stuff that is available in this new version of Blender 2.93 LTS, then be sure to check the links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform is a service that allows you to build modern cloud-native apps. Now, what does that mean? Well, basically, it allows you to have a, a nice, visually rich experience UI to, build, to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale applications on their platform. And it supports multiple different programming languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby. It also has support for uh, container images and Docker and even static sites. And what it does, the platform allows you to have uh, the ability to push code to production without having to do that much which is really cool because it allows you to have high scalability and zero infrastructure management. But, you know, what does that mean? Well, you simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository to the app platform and it will do all the heavy lifting for you, like handling the infrastructure, like the app runtimes and dependencies. And also it will create, manage, and renew your SSL certificates, as well as protect your apps from DDoS attacks. And you can do this by just pushing code to production with just a few clicks and little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud native standards that will automatically analyze your code, create containers based on the analysis, and run them on Kubernetes clusters. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free. You can go to do.co slash DLN and get started with a $100 free credit. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have the latest release of OBS Studio 27.0. I'm a big fan of OBS Studio. I've used it to make this show since the very first episode, actually. And OBS is a critical piece of my workflow, and with every new release, it gets more and more awesome. Now, there are some times when you have a, a workflow change with a big release from like the 26 to the 27 series. Some stuff happened. That's true with this particular episode as well, because when I switched, I switched today and found some, you know, issues. But I fixed them all and it's all good to go. And I'm now playing with all the new cool features, which are lot of cool features in this latest release. So this new release of OBS 27 adds a bunch of new stuff that I'm excited about. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to talk about all of it, so I will do my best to stick to just the highlights, but here we go. So some new features that come with this latest release is that a new capture method has been added for display capture, allowing the ability to capture displays across GPUs, which is 
really, really interesting. And they also added the ability for missing files, giving you a warning to letting you know that when you load the application, it will say, hey, you have these files missing. And it also allows you to bulk update when folders have been moved, for example. So if you switch between computers and you have different location where the folders are, you could say, okay, look for it here, and it will automatically update those files so you can quickly uh, adjust when you make changes. So I've had a cases where I would switch and move files and then those files no longer exist and it's looking for them, but I don't know which all scenes, because if you have a very complicated scene structure like I do, or I have well dozens of scenes and hundreds of sources in combination of all those scenes, it kind of creates a situation where if one of those files vanishes for some reason, like I move the folder somewhere or whatever, it would be hard to notice that the change happens until I actually run into it. Whereas this new feature just notifies you as soon as you load OBS, which is really, really cool. They've also added a really cool source vis visibility transition feature, which allows you to set a transition for a source when in showing or hiding it, not necessarily just switching a scene to it. So you could have a scene uh, transition for switching to that particular scene. And then when a source is visible in that scene, it could have a different transition, which is really cool. They've also added service integration and browser doc support for Linux support, which is awesome because it means that if you have integration with like Twitch or, you know, notifications of, you know, updates of, you know, people donating or whatever that streamers would typically want to have, they could have that docked into the OBS on Linux now, which is awesome. And another thing for Linux is that they've added support for Wayland. This includes a new Pipewire capture source as well when using Wayland, which is awesome. And for those who are Ubuntu users, you would need to have uh, Ubuntu 20.10 20, 20 or newer to be able to use this for the Pipewire capture. But for people who are using Fire, uh, Fedora, for example, you just, you just have it. So you just install OBS and you're good to go, which is awesome. Uh, they've also added a new trackmat mode to Stinger transitions. Now, this is really cool because... This makes it when you switch uh, switch scenes that you can have scene mask attached to display parts of the previous and current scene at the same time, which is fantastic because there are some people who have like really complicated scenes that are doing masking and you would notice that the mask does not adjust to the actual transition. It just kind of like shows up at the end. This makes that change so that it actually will be a part of the transition, which is really cool. Now, they've also added support for sRGB texture formats, applying color operations in linear space and that sort of stuff. So that's a more technical thing. If you want to learn more about that, I'll have it linked in the show notes for more information. But they added something that is so important that it's kind of weird that it took 27 versions to add, but it is a very complicated thing to add. So I understand why it did take a long time. And that is undo and redo of changes inside of OBS. Now, this seems like, of course, this should be there, right? But it's not, it wasn't there previously, and it is a big deal because I have a very complicated scene setup with a lot of sources and a lot of filters on those sources and a lot of uh, modifications to the properties and all sorts of stuff. And there's also different effects on different things. And if I make a change to the transform and location and size of stuff, it, it, you know, it can be a problem not having undo and redo. But because there are so many different variables in OBS and so complicated, an undo redo is kind of difficult to do. So it does make sense why it would take so long, but it's also so awesome to see an undo redo function added because there are many times I have done something and go, oh, I wish there was an undo. 
well, mostly the re- I don't really care about the redo that much. The undo is the most important piece, uh, but it's really awesome that they have added it. So there's tons of great stuff in this latest release. And uh, if you want to try it out, we'll, you'll, you can check out the links in the show notes for the blog post, as well as you'll find it in your repos, probably. Now, not all distros are going to have it in the repos, but some of them will. And if you are using a distribution that doesn't have it in the repo or takes a while for updates, there are other options like the flat pack and the snap and that sort of stuff. So you could do it that way. But if you want to learn more about this latest release of what's new in OBS 27, then be sure to check the link in the show notes. Up next on the show, we have some very spicy news for you, and that is the Cinnamon Desktop 5.0 has been released. So prior to the beta of the next Linux Mint that is coming fairly soon, the they, the Cinnamon team has announced the latest release of the Cinnamon desktop, which is 5.0. And Cinnamon 5.0 comes with many improvements that they say makes the Linux Mint desktop environment uh, more stable and reliable, including a memory limit mechanism so that it won't eat up all your RAM on your computer. Now, this is interesting because uh, there are some people who think that's kind of controversial because the way it works is that to address memory leaks, they say that it uh, that are you know it's hard to pinpoint these kinds of issues. So for example, like someone leaving their computers on for many days, not knowing exactly the cause of the RAM leak, then they, they decided to create this workaround. So what this does is that you'll be able to set a maximum amount of RAM that Cinnamon is allowed to use. And if that maximum amount is reached, Cinnamon will restart itself. And they say that you won't lose your session or your windows. It will just be unresponsive for a second or so while it restarts itself internally. It will keep a log of such events as well so that you can see what happened and when it happened and that sort of stuff to help troubleshoot issues and that sort of thing. So maybe to like in the future, figure out where the actual memory leaks are happening and that sort of thing. So it is interesting that they're doing this sort of stuff, but some people have been critical about it because they don't like the idea that the DE will just force itself to restart because that could create some problems that in itself will have problems. Uh, But it is interesting that they're trying to figure out how to fix the memory leak stuff that happened in Cinnamon. But another big update to this Cinnamon 5.0 and probably one of the biggest updates is the inclusion of a new uh, tool for, actually it's a GUI tool and a CLI tool for checking, listing, and performing updates on Cinnamon Spices. So the Cinnamon Spices, this is including things like uh, applets, desklets, extensions, and themes. So all of this will be included on this new tool. This means that you no longer need to rely on a third-party tool for uh, updating stuff like that. You can go to uh, your your settings to update your spices for whether that's your extension, your desklets, your applets, etc. So that's really, really cool. And Clement from Mint says that Cinnamon 5 will ship with a command line tool called Cinnamon Spice Updater, which can list available updates and apply them if you want to. To make it easy for distributions, they say that the integration for the Cinnamon Spice updates will also will be available in Update Manager uh, as a Python 3 module that people can use for their for a GUI style. So that's really cool. And there's also been a lot of other stuff done to this latest release of Cinnamon Desktop. If you'd like to learn more about what's all in there, I'll have links in the show notes where you can check out the, the change log and that sort of stuff. But again, uh, Cinnamon 5.0 is now available. Now, I don't think the, there's any distributions that are, have it shipped right now, but of course the rolling releases will probably quit get it very quickly if they don't have it already. Uh, and with Linux Mint uh, 20.2, right around the corner, probably about a month or so away, because typically what happens is they release Cinnamon about a month or so before they release the new version of Mint, so they have time for testing and that sort of stuff. Uh, so 
we're going to say probably sometime around mid-June-ish, or not June-ish, sorry. Obviously, that's not that's the current month that we're in. Mid-July is when I'm betting that Linux Mint 20.2 will come out. So we'll see if I'm right. Anyway, links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Kali Linux is now available with version 2021.2. For those unfamiliar with Kali Linux, Kali Linux is an open source Debian-based Linux distribution geared towards various information security tasks like uh, penetration testing or security researching or computer forensics and reverse engineering, that sort of stuff. It is quite popular in the realm of wannabe hackers, though, because, you know, it's a genuinely good distribution for penetration testing and security research. But there are a lot of people who want to use it because it sounds like a cool distro to use due to the hacker uh, relations that it has, that kind of thing. So with that said, if you're not a professional in the field related to Kali Linux, please do not use it as a daily driver. I feel like I have to say this every time I talk about it on the show, just in case when I cover it, because Kali Linux is a great distribution, but it's designed to break into things not be a hardened security system. So unless you are working in a field that requires you to use it as a daily driver, don't. With that said, let's talk about what's new in 2021.2. So 2021.2 introduces Kaboxer 1.0. This is the Kali Applications Boxer, as that's what it stands for. And it's an applications inside of containers. So what does exactly it do? Well, not every tool, they, they say that not every tool is easy to package, so there are various criteria to meet. At times, they even say that some crazy dependency trees or peculiar system modifications have to be done. So you may need to use a legacy library, for example, or you may need to change a configuration here or there for something that would break another application. So in order to solve that issue, they are creating uh, this applications container system, or Kaboxer, so that it works with tool authors to try and make it easier, and also you spend less time building these packages. It also, like, basically using containers, you can put in a bunch of complex non-standard packaging into the container and integrate it with the rest of the operating system because it's bundled in this uh, ecosystem sort of thing. Now, of course, there are going to be some overhead issues because by doing a container system, you're going to be packaging a lot of of, uh, extra uh, libraries and that sort of stuff. So there are some downsides to it in a similar way that containers and that sort of stuff have their own downsides. But uh, there's also a lot of other cool things that are happening in uh, Kali Linux 2021.2. And that is Kali Tweaks 1.0 has been introduced. It's a way to make it easier for configurations of Kali Linux so you can customize it to however you want by using these tweaks and that sort of stuff. So that's cool. There's also been a update to the Bleeding Edge branch of Kali Linux. So they say that it's a complete makeover for the backend that produces packages for the latest updates inside of this bleeding edge branch. And also they have disabled privilege ports in this latest release, opening a, basically, when you're opening a listener on ports of uh, 1024 uh, slash TCP UDP and below, it no longer requires super user access to do that. Uh, Depending on your preference, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, you know, your opinion may vary. Uh, There's also new tools added to this latest release, including VS Code, uh, so Visual Studio Code is included. Uh, Ghidra has been added, along with uh, Cloud Brute, uh, DirSearch, uh, Ferox Buster, Paku, uh, Pirate. Uh, I don't know how it's Pirates. 
I probably said that one wrong, Quark Engine and some other stuff. They've also done some theme enhancements for Kali Linux, added a way to quickly swap between double and one-line terminal prompts for those who want to do that, and also made uh, improvements to the quick launch and file manager tweaks for XFCE uh, version that they're using. And also they have made Raspberry Pi images for Kali Linux for those who want to run it on Raspberry Pi 400, which is that keyboard version of the Raspberry Pi where it has it built inside of a keyboard, uh, which has, they also say that it has uh, noted that it has built in Bluetooth support with the Raspberry Pi 400. So that is nice to see. And also they have improved the, like the first run wait time of like the booting of it and that sort of stuff, as well as they've done some, a bunch of improvements to various things for like Docker support, uh, uh, PK exec patched, Wireshark improvements, and uh, also improvements to the Kali NetHunter support for like the, uh, they've updated it to Android 11. So that's like, imagine, you know, Kali Linux tools for Android. That's really what NetHunter is. So anyway, there's a bunch of new stuff in Kali Linux. And again, Kali Linux is a great distribution for those who are security researchers, penetration testers, and that sort of stuff. Or if you want to get into that field, it's also great for that. It's a fantastic distribution for those particular things. But if you're not doing those things, you should not be using Kali Linux because it is not meant to be a daily driver for anyone who is not, who's an average user or whatever. You know, it's very, it's a very specific, it's a great distribution, but it's a very specific distribution for use cases. So there you go. Just want to make that clear just again, because every time I mention Kali Linux on the show, I get comments about people, you know, who've never used Linux before trying to use Kali. And like, that's, not necessarily best option. So just going to put at, put at that out there. But if you want to learn more about Kali Linux, especially with 2021.2, I'll have links in the show notes below. And speaking of security, this episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager that is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important because, well, the best security practice these days is to have a password that is different for every account on every website that you sign up to. And that is a great policy to have, but it also means that you pretty much have to have a, you you need a password manager at this point if you want to have the proper security practice because it's a very painful thing to do to keep up with all those passwords if you don't. So Bitwarden solves these issues by providing tools to automatically store your passwords with a secured vault, automatically generate those passwords and passphrases if you want to use those, and even automatically fill in those passwords for you on login forms so you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's fantastic. Bitwarden also makes it possible to access all of this data across many different types of devices, like your web browser, your mobile apps, desktop applications, and even on the command line if you want to do that for some reason. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption as well before it ever leaves your devices. That's doing it locally on those devices. So that means you're the only person with access to your data. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it's also 100% open source. That's right. 100% open source. That means they understand that the transparency for security is a very important, vital piece of security and privacy. So it's fantastic that they have that included. And they don't just stop there. They also do third-party security audits where they bring in firms to audit the code to make sure it is as secure as possible and provide ways they can improve it. And they also provide the the output and the the information about those audits publicly on their blog, which is just amazing. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account. But I think you want to check out the premium accounts because they have 
a fantastic set of features that come with that. Plus, it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. For just $10 per year, you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service, and so much more, including the new Bitwarden Send feature, which is really awesome because it's basically a, a, a secure way of sending files back and forth through Bitwarden. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data. And also it allows you to support a company that truly gets open source. So get that $10 per year premium account to let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is the latest release of Clonezilla with 2.7.2. So 2.7.2 comes just uh, four months after the previous version of 2.7.1 is upgraded the Linux kernel to version 5.10.40, and it uses the latest systemd 248.3 as the init system and a bunch of other stuff because systemd is much more than init system, but that's a different topic for another day. Anyway, if you're not familiar with Clonezilla, Clonezilla is a partitioning and disk imaging slash cloning program similar to TrueImage, for example, and it saves and restores only used blocks in a hard drive. So it has, uh, it basically does it where it does transactional uh, cloning as well, and it has different options. We're talking about Clonezilla Live specifically, but there's also the server edition uh, for Clonezilla SE, if you want to check that out. But we're talking about Live because uh, that's what the latest release is uh, I wanted to refer to because of the new features that are coming in the latest Clonezilla Live is really interesting. Like for example, the uh, VGA with uh, the, v the changes to the VGA structure of the boot menu. So that it's, it's referred to as VGA with large font and two RAM, and it moves it from uh, basically using the KM KMS with large font to a submenu. They have a very esoteric way of describing things in the boot system. So there's that, but this is basically for people who have an want to do an alternative solution for a JFB term not working in the KMS mode for some VGA cards of the you know booting having boot issues in that say, in that sense. And they also have done this interesting because I didn't know that this was a problem. I never really paid attention because I don't use hard drives that much. But for those who do have hard drives, there was this weird bug that was rather uh, created an alarming chunk sound that when you turned the machine off and or halted the machine or even rebooted it sometimes, it would create this really weird uh, a chunk sound when you're running on hard drives. And because I usually just do SSDs, I never heard this. Uh, and they made this update, which creates a fix to solve that interest, that problem, which I thought was pretty interesting uh, because I've never heard of that happening before. So anyway, um, this also improves the process of volume headers for Veracrypt encrypted volumes, which that just that is great. Uh, and there's also a lot of other stuff in this latest release. Uh, this is a distribution based on Debian SID for those who don't know. So it's kind of like a rolling snapshot style release. So it's not a rolling distribution necessarily, but it's a snapshot based on Debian SID, which is kind of rolling. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Clonezilla, I'll have links in the show notes below. These days, it seems that version schemes no longer matter. With that in mind, the latest major release of RescueZilla has arrived from the previous version of 2.1 to now 2.2. RescueZilla has been updated to use the latest version of Ubuntu, which is Ubuntu 2104 Hirsute uh, Hippo as the base of the distribution. And it also has uh, been updated with a very sought after, requ highly requested feature that is the ability to clone disks using the uh, device to device mode, allowing you to copy one. Uh, drive to an, on one disk to another. 
directly. Now, this is a very important piece that was missing from RescueZilla that uh, CloneZilla has had that a lot of people were wanting RescueZilla to add. And now that it has, that is very cool. Uh, it also adds support for virtual machine images, or you can, which you can now restore and explore in various different formats, such as uh, QEMU's formats, also uh, VirtualBox's VDI or VMware's VMDK, as well as Hyper-V and other ones, even like RAW, uh, like DD or IMG files as well. And it also now supports restoring of images created by other imaging tools like uh, Part Part Clone. Uh, well, okay, things that are based on Part Clone specifically, so like Fog Project or Redo Rescue, uh, Fox Clone, FS Archiver, and stuff like that. So uh, as long as it supports the part clone style, then it would be able to have uh, compatibility with it. It also uh, lets you customize compression formats and compression levels based on whether or not, you know, what based on using part clone and that stuff. So uh, what's really interesting is that another new feature of RescueZilla 2.2 is that they say that it will include full support for all advanced operations done by CloneZilla Restore, which is really interesting because, you know, there's been a, a for in this space of rescue or backups and stuff like that or cloning, disk imaging and that sort of stuff, there's been a, you know, argument about like whether... You know, RescueZilla versus CloneZilla, which one's better? And there's a lot of people who are on the side of CloneZilla, and there's some people on the side of RescueZilla. And with this new change of the 2.2, that may even change a bit more with, you know, the support for the CloneZilla operations as well as the device-to-device -device stuff or whatever. It's really interesting. If you are, I'm not familiar enough with either one, either one that's like extensively to give an opinion on which one is better, but I'm curious if you are, please let me know in the comments below or on the DLN forum thread that I'll have linked in the show notes. So I'm very curious what your thoughts are on the RescueZilla versus CloneZilla debate. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about NixOS 21.05, which is the latest release of the NixOS distro. It has a bunch of changes. So for example, they have upgraded the uh, GNOME desktop from 3.36 to 40, the Plasma 5 desktop from 5.18.5 to 5.21.3. They've also updated GCC to 10.3, Mesa to 21.0.1, uh, 21 and they've also updated the default Linux kernel from 5.4 to 5.10. Uh, there's also a lot of other kernel options. Basically, every supported kernel is available if you want to switch to it, but the default will be 5.10 at this point. Uh, so for those who are not familiar, what is NixOS, right? So they say that NixOS is designed for DevOps developers and tinkerers. So it's a it's definitely it's on the it's in the realm of the hardcore style distribution. Uh, so just put that out there. They say that NixOS is an operating system where everything from the kernel, application, system packages, configuration files, and all that are built by the OS's own Nix package management. So it's very uh, customizable and you can change all sorts of stuff, but also they have a ton of packages. They say they have like over 60,000 packages, I think, that are available. Uh, and they have a lot of um, interesting approaches because it's very different in the way than other distributions are made. Like it has, so the directories like uh, bin, sbin, lib, those things, those don't exist inside of NixOS. They have a different structure for it because all the packages are stored uh, in isolation from each other, which this can cause some pain points for people who are doing scripting and that sort of stuff. If you, especially if you have like absolute paths for scripts like user bin slash uh, Python, for example, or whatever. These could be an issue, but it's really interesting because the way that uh, Nix OS works is the Nix packages is has like a really up to date structure through this isolation approach. 
so NixOS allows you to define a, syst- a desired system in a single configuration file which makes your configuration easy to version control, like through Git or that kind of thing, and share between different systems. They say that you can you know, have like really easy reproducible builds and deployment through this system. So they say that anytime your system configuration is changed, NixOS will create a new boot generation, and these generations can coexist without interfering with each other, so it's very easy to roll back and you know, change your order of like what you're using for different configurations. It's really interesting. So there's also like a bunch of different desktop environment oper- options and various different window managers available as well. Uh, they say that things like 30-something window managers are available and like 17 desktop environments. I didn't even know there were that many of those, you know, because there's a lot that have gone come, in and gone come and gone over the years. So maybe they have support for all of them. I don't know. Um, so Nix packages are really interesting because they, they don't do a, they do a non-root installation, which is another kind of thing that makes it different from other distributions because like apt is when you install a dev package, you're using sudo, which is doing a root process to install it. Now, if you're using like flat packs and um, flat packs and app images don't have, don't need root in order to install and use. So though it's, it's similar to that, but not the technology is not the same. It's just, that's what it means. You don't need sudo for the installation of it, which is really interesting. Anyway, I think that uh, NixOS is a really interesting distribution. If you want to check it out, if you think that Arch is not hardcore enough, then maybe you want to check out NixOS. I don't know. It, it is an interesting distribution, and it's really cool in how they structure it. Uh, it's very unique in how they structure it, so it might be something you want to check out. And if it is, then I'll have a link in the show notes for the latest release of NixOS 21.05. Up next in the show, and the last topic for today, is Amazon's sidewalk system. So for those who don't know, I'll give you a brief breakdown of what's happening, you know, what it is and that sort of stuff, and we'll talk about like what this could mean. And Anyway, so on June 8th, 2021, most Amazon smart home devices, as well as certain other connected gadgets, will become part of a nationwide network called Sidewalk, which is Amazon Sidewalk. So what does that mean? So Sidewalk is a new wireless network developed by Amazon. It uses Bluetooth low energy combined with a part of the Wi-Fi radio spectrum in the 900 megahertz range to connect devices beyond their normal ranges. So basically, they say that the advantage of using this low frequency band of the radio spectrum is that the signals are extremely robust and can move around or penetrate obstacles with ease. So this means that they can travel relatively long distances Unlike the, you know, the 5G spectrum uh, area, the 5 gigahertz spectrum, basically, uh, that, that once they get to the hit by a wall, that would lose distance quite quickly, whereas the signals for this lower bandwidth allows it to go much farther, even to the point where there's potential range up to about half a mile or so. So... According to Amazon, they talk that they're describing what Sidewalk can do. So they say that with Sidewalk, you can continue to receive motion alerts from your security cameras even when your Wi-Fi goes down or if your Wi-Fi does not reach your smart lights at the end of your driveway, for example. Sidewalk can help them stay connected. And in the future, Sidewalk will also support a range of experiences from using Sidewalk-enabled devices to help find pets or valuables to smart security and lighting to diagnose to diagnostics for appliances and tools. So, there's a lot to unpack there, but first of all, let's talk about like how much bandwidth is being used by this because a lot of people are worried about, you know, opening your internet to your neighbors kind of seems weird, right? So they say that 
Amazon says that the bandwidth usage for each sidewalk network is capped at 80 kilobits per second, which is roughly about 1.5 then dial up essentially because that's 56 kilobit or around 140th of bandwidth used to stream a high def video. So the network won't take up that much of your internet connection. And they also say there's going to be a limit for how much data can be used across the, the network for like on a per month, per month basis. They say that Amazon promises never to use more than 500 megabytes of data in a month, which is kind of like uh, in comparison about 10 minutes of a HD video. Uh, so it is, it is a very small amount. It's not going to allow a lot of access, but the way it's doing the bridging, mm, that's a bit interesting. So let's talk about security, right? Well, uh, it's interesting because Amazon says that customer privacy and security is foundational to Amazon's sidewalk. The sidewalk network uses three layers of encryption to keep data shared over the network safe, and the same strong encryption standards are required for all applications and devices that use the network. They also published a white paper on the subject of security and privacy over the sidewalk network. So I'll have that linked in the show notes if you want to check that up and that kind of thing. But, you know, they say, you know, I assume you're you're probably going to be thinking like, what's the catch, right? Well, I guess the catch here is that it's opt out. So unless you choose to not participate, your devices will automatically be enabled to be included in the Amazon sidewalk system. From a business decision, I, I it makes sense to do opt-out because a lot of people are not going to be aware that this is going to be a thing. So the the value of Sidewalk is really the more people participating in Sidewalk, the more powerful and useful it is as a network. So I kind of get why they did opt-out. But an ad hoc network that gives mountains of metadata to Amazon or whoever Amazon deems worthy to receive it is not something I'm super happy about. Or I mean, I'm not going to participate. I don't really even have Amazon devices to participate, so that's not really a problem. But if I did, I still wouldn't. <laughs> anyway, it really comes down to how much you trust Amazon or whether or not you do. So I do have an Amazon account, and I do use it for some stuff, but it doesn't really uh, necessarily affect me that much. But... It is kind of interesting because, you know, accidents happen. And what could this be? Could there be like Wi-Fi has had some over the years, some issues, you could say. And uh, and even Amazon has had some issues like with the Alexa bug that there there was a found exposed voice history to hackers that uh, found that exploited the the, uh, vulnerability. And there's also stuff that Amazon does on purpose. That's weird. So like the company has said that, um, it might share sidewalk data with third-party developers further down the line. They don't say why or how or any of that stuff. But, you know, that kind of data sharing isn't known for being the best thing to happen. Also, they've uh, been caught doing something that's really interesting, that they are now making adjustments years after, where Amazon has agreements with law enforcement agencies to share ring camera information. So, like, if you have a ring doorbell that has recording people are coming to your house and, and conversations you have with those people, the, that information has been shared since at least 2019 with uh, police departments and stuff like that. And only now, as of this week, Amazon has announced that starting next week, that police and fire departments that request those that information from your ring products, the user videos and information, that stuff are now going to have to be requesting publicly. So until next week, they didn't have to request publicly. And also at one point in 2019, 
they stated that uh, Amazon said police can keep ring camera footage forever and share it with whomever they want. So, you know, not the best situation to be in. Uh, but they do say that the the uh, the new feature of making police requests more transparent uh, is should make it good better for you know being able to see the view history of user agency posts and stuff like that. It's like I guess yes, that's better. You know, it only took you two years to finally make it transparent. But I'm not uh, Amazon is not a company that I would say is like the worst company ever. But they have done some a lot of sketchy stuff over the years. That's way more than just this. I'm not going to go into it in like the full details because there's a lot of stuff. And besides, uh, I don't know the full details of all the things they've done. But this one is a little bit interesting because the sidewalk technology is kind of interesting and it's just it's a cool tech in that way. But and and if it was open source, I would be less bothered by it. And if it was you know, using stuff that you could choose to be a participant in or using protocols that were more open and transparent. I mean, you know, it sounds like it's a kind of a cool idea, but there are some downsides for sure. Uh, but there are some people who are on the pro side of this. And so I don't want to imply that my opinion is the only valid opinion, of course. So if you'd like to see the perspective of someone who is in favor of being part of the Amazon sidewalk system, then I will have a link to a, ZD, a ZDNet article for just that in the show notes below, as well as some other information regarding this topic in, in links in the show notes for all of this kind of thing. If you want to learn more about Amazon sidewalk and also links to choose to opt out. If you want to do that, that will tell you like how to do that kind of thing. If you do have Amazon products, but you don't want to participate in the sidewalk system, you have until June 8th to disable the, or to opt out so that you're not participant. Uh, I'm not sure what happens if you, once you participate, you, I would assume you could also disable it after the fact, but if you don't want to be participant at all, then you got until June 8th to address it. Anyway, links for more information in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss the topics between different topics. Then we can have conversations about all sorts of stuff. There's sometimes some tangents that happen, you know, anyway. There's also a hangout after every episode of each week. So join me in the patron-only post-show by becoming a patron going to tuxdigital.com contribute. You can also order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt, which is a shirt I made to celebrate the, the proliferation of Linux and also kind of like convey the message that whether or not Linux is there, it probably is. You know, whether or not you know it's there, I mean, it probably is. That's why it has Tux blended in the background of the shirt. And there's also a lot of other stuff at dlnstore.com where you can get this shirt and many, many more things. You can get hats, hoodies, mugs, uh, t-shirts, and stickers, and even aprons if you want to. And basically, if you get an apron for the This Week in Linux podcast, you actually can twill while you grill or something. Anyway, dealinstore.com to check out all the great stuff there and all the great swag. We have so many things, great things, tons of stuff. So check it out, dealinstore.com. And also, if you'd like to uh, contribute to the show without any extra cost to you, you can go to use our affiliate links by going to tuxedo.com slash affiliates. You'll find links for places like Amazon, 
for example. Uh, also, Hummel Bundle and many more. Again, Tuxers.com slash affiliates. And also, check out the uh, other podcasts are on the Destination Linux Network. There's all sorts of great stuff, including other shows that I do, like the Destination Linux Podcast, the Hardware Addicts Podcast, and many, many more. Go to destinationlinux.network to check out all those. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux. Good news.